0: All right, what's going on guys? Today I'm chatting with Matt Wenning. Uh so Matt, thanks for joining us. Really really excited to have you on the show today. We're going to be talking about uh remaining injury free as an elite So any of you guys who are familiar with Matt knows that he's kind of a bit of a unicorn in this sense. He's uh he's very very accomplished, uh, has multiple world records, multiple world titles, and hasn't really seemed to sustain any major injuries. And so I wanted to have him on here to get uh, you know, his particular insights on how he's been able to do this and how he keeps his, his lifters and his athletes injury-free because essentially the longer you can train injury-free means probably the stronger you're going to get, especially, you know, if, if this is something you're in for the long haul. So Matt, uh, why don't you start out by just telling some of the listeners about yourself, about your background and kind of what you're doing right now.
1: Yeah, sure. So I started lifting at about 12 and a half, um, did my first competition in 1993, I was 13 years old. Um, That started to spark interest in the field. So I did an an internship with the Colts in 1999, right right out of high school. I wasn't entirely sure I was college ready or college material. Uh, Once I figured out that I was going to have to go to a higher level of schooling to be a strength coach, that's kind of what I found out was the path I wanted to go. Um, I applied to school, got in. uh, There's a long story on that, but to shorten it up. Um, Got in, did very well in school, Um, got a master's and a graduate assistant position as a strength coach, Uh, did an internship at University of Texas with football when they were at the top two schools in the country in the early 2000s, and then uh, also did an internship at International Performance Institute where we had, um, in Florida, where we had contracts with the Raptors, the Pacers, the Jaguars, that was my first taste of pro, pro athletes. And then um, um, about six months out of graduate school, uh, started working with the military. They just actually reached out to me. Um, I didn't know a whole lot about tactical stuff, but I was willing to help and try. Went down there, they liked what I had to see, what what I had to say and what I had to show. They signed me onto a three-year deal to work with uh, Ranger Regiment and then once they implemented a lot of my ideas, the injury rates went way down and performance rates went way up. So that kind of rang a rang a bell or created a wave in the military system. And uh, ended up working with um, Ranger Regiment, Fourth Infantry, 82nd Airborne, Border Patrol, SEAL Team Three. Uh, did some work with Israeli Special Forces, um, and that's all the stuff I can think of off the top of my head. And then through that time, you know, broke three all-time world records. Um, and was probably top, top three in the world for, I would say about 15 years, whether I was equipped or all, if not the best. Um, And like you're saying, I I sustained a lot of that um, titles and mileage with really no injuries. Um, I had a pulled groin and I've had a couple little like back, you know, disruptions, but nothing that's ever needed. Surgery, or I couldn't figure it out and train smarter to get better at. So, in that in that sense, yeah, I guess I am kind of a, kind of a unicorn. I, I always played everything smart because I knew if I lasted longer, that I was going to be able to beat more genetically gifted guys.
0: Yeah, hundred percent. And and to be honest, that's something that I've really really focused on the last couple of years. So I have sustained some couple of very serious back injuries, which kind of made me realize like, okay, if this is something I want to do in the long haul, especially because. I don't consider myself particularly genetically gifted. I've had to kind of go, you know, the route of just getting as massive as possible essentially to, to really maximize my strength. And so one of the biggest things that I've seen as a coach and then also what I've seen for myself, like there was a whole two years of my life where I was taken out because I was on crutches, I couldn't walk because of my back, I had to wear back braces, it was, it was crap. And I was just thinking like, well, you know, where would I be had I not sustained that injury? And I think that's something a lot of lifters go through on, on a regular basis. Now, I, I do think that, you know, like you were saying, maybe like a pull groin or, you know, pulling muscles and those little tweaks that you get, I think a lot of that stuff is unavoidable, but I also believe that, you know, a meaningful amount of the injuries that people do sustain, especially at a high level are potentially avoidable if if they had just kind of gone maybe a different route. So in your opinion, or, or just kind of based off your experience, what, what do you think are, are some of the primary contributors to some of these injuries that people could potentially avoid if they were just training a little bit smarter.
1: Well, I think the one big thing is, is in the gym, never take the core lifts ie squat bench deadlift to max, always take them to about 90% save some in the tank. I think that's one of the biggest things that, you know, especially in society and in the fitness industry, especially in what you consider the hardcore side like powerlifting, strongman stuff is everybody's always talking intensity and push harder and, dig deeper and in reality, you should always push hard enough to get better, but easy enough to always recover. And that's where I think everybody screws up is that they think hundred they think max out or max effort days, like how I train is pure max effort. In reality, it's about 90, 92%. I always leave probably one set in the tank. Um, so that's always been beneficial. And, and I actually learned that from a guy named Larry Pacifico, which was considered by most to be as far as back to back world championships, probably the best power ever. forever. He won 10 years straight with no contention. Um, and back when there was only like one federation,
0: oh, so, is that all um, just 10 years.
1: <laughs> yeah, exactly. That's wild. I mean, 10 years of being absolute best and probably one of the strongest guys in the world. So to mm-hmm. me, what he always used to say, and he, he was around, uh, the area very close to where I grew up. He was only about an hour and a half away. And I remember him saying that he's like, Matt, you know, you're going to be a great lifter. If you can hang in there, he goes, you just need to make sure that your training is always leaving a little bit in the tank. And he told me that when I was 16. So, um, he knew at 16 years old that I was going to be a 900 pound squatter, uh, in, in, uh, in raw. And I don't think he knew how far the gear was going to go, but you know, I ended up squatting, uh, 1197 pound world record in gear back in 2011. Um, and honestly, every world record I've ever had, I probably only ever strained about 95% of my capability. I was always there to win and break records. I was never there to max. Um, and that's where I think people screw up a lot. You know, go go to a meet, go into the gym and break a PR, but once you break the PR, walk away. You're already in the green, there's no sense in going to the red. And uh, that's where I kind of developed that philosophy, you know, let me stay in the game for, you know, 25 years but i was in
0: the top five in the world for 15. no and and that makes a lot of sense especially because like i think anyone who's ever competed there's just a different level of like fatigue that you generate like everyone's gone out and and had one of those you know stellar days where they're like eight for nine nine for nine and they kind of leave and they're like oh you know what i I feel like i could have got maybe maybe you know two or five more kilos on my squat and like maybe two more kilos on my on my bench press but they leave and like the next day they're feeling great. Like they don't, they're not banged up. But then when you actually grind out a true one RM, it's like, man, you need like a week off. You need someone to hold you for a while because you're just so banged up. And that, that tiny, tiny little bit of, of extra push that it takes to take you from like 98% to a hundred percent is like the rate of fatigue is just exponentially larger than, yeah. than if you go real close to, to maxing out. So that makes a lot of sense. Oh yeah. So like, that's,
1: yeah, that's, that's, no, that's no joke whatsoever, and a lot of it's, you know, just the emotional, psychological wear out, but I yeah. think in even in competition, you're better off walking out wondering if you could have got two more kilos than knowing that you can't, because then it sets the positive mindset for the next training cycle, so yeah. if you always leave a meet feeling yeah. like you got more in the tank, you're ready to train harder, you don't get beat up, you're, you can train harder faster, and the next time you break a PR, it'll be even easier than that. And that's what I find is like, always breaking PRs and walking away with the green light on and never trying to turn the red light on. And I think the red light comes with, I say, you know, me and Ed Cohen have talked about this a lot. He was a huge influence of mine. I used to drive up to Chicago and train with him. And, uh, you know, his biggest thing was, we used to talk about this all the time. He goes, if you really, truly get to a point where you're at, you know, your genetic potential and you're super strong, he's like, you have 10 maxes in your whole career. 10 real maxes in your whole career. So are you gonna burn those up in, comp, in, you know, in training, or are you gonna burn them up when you're only at an intermediate level, or are you gonna utilize them when they count? And I think that's a, another huge aspect of getting really good and staying good for, yeah. going to be way stronger in the long haul if they just keep breaking PRs and keep feeling like everything's easier versus grinding everything out like a crazy ass, you know? But that's the problem is like for normal people, you know, you open up your normal magazine or you get on like Larry Wheels' page and you see him doing this outlandish crazy shit. Yeah. And then people all think that I need to do to get better. And in reality, that's not the case. So yeah, it's, it's really hard because you're fighting, you're fighting the, you know, the mentality or, or the marketing mentality of everybody versus trying to train, teach people to train smart.
0: So in in your opinion, then, and obviously this is going to vary, especially depending on the level of experience of the athlete, but as let's just kind of for some context, assuming that an athlete is somewhat in that kind of intermediate to to approaching advanced stage. um, Do you have sort of like a recommendation of, or like a range even of yearly meets that they should be doing? Because I know there's some people who, you know, want to compete every like two months, three months. And it's like, man, like you'd be way better off just saving yourself at least in my opinion in some cases for some of the more important competitions but do you find that there's like a certain cutoff or a certain range where your athletes perform best because they get the most amount of time or or anything like that
1: i think once you get up to the advanced level you're probably only good for about two meets a year at tops mm-hmm. and the reason mm-hmm. is is that you're going to work your ass off for three to four months to make two to four kilo jumps in each lift once you hit ceiling limit potential mm-hmm. so i think the biggest problem is that you have to to think about your training system and your training philosophy is are you building new strength or are you testing old strength? And that's the problem is if you're doing a meet every eight weeks, you're probably only testing what you already have. You're not building anything new.
0: And so one of the things I know a lot of people struggle with sometimes is is like uh, when it comes to injuries, right? It's like training load, volume, um, training frequency and, and not, there was one actually thing that, that I saw Greg Knuckles did a a review. He had a bunch of data that he collected from a bunch of high level lifters. And one of the biggest, um, issues that he found that was a predictor of injury was, uh, not fully rehabilitating an existing injury or an existing limitation. So how do you go about, um, managing a lot of these variables with athletes to make sure that they're still pushing in in that kind of, you know, progressive overload range, but they're not necessarily going overboard.
1: Well, this is where I really differ from a lot of guys like Greg Knuckles and all those dudes that I think, unlike what you did not list was the change of mode. So everybody thinks frequency, intensity and all this stuff should be um, heavily monitored. And that is true. But the big The big factor in the massive tool that I think can be applied to people is changing the mode or the movement, right? You want to grind the bench press until a fine powder until you don't have anything left. You want to grind the traditional squat to pieces until there's nothing left. You want to grind your natural deadlift position until there's nothing left. And at the end of the day, what you should be doing is selecting movements and exercises that are bringing about your weaknesses and not stroking your ego. You know, I was, At my best I was an 825 deadlifter and my best sumo was 750. I trained my sumo probably twice as hard as I did my conventional and every time my sumo went up five my conventional went up 10. Because the sumo deadlift worked my weaknesses and that is the biggest problem that I see with almost everyone training consistently right now with weight training and I don't know what the, what the issue with it is, if it's ego or if it's Instagram and they gotta look strong in front of everybody, but the trick is, is that I think change of mode or movement or exercise tends to be one of the humongous factors in longevity. Um, I never really had to train around a lot of bumps and bruises and injuries because I was training different movements, angles, and pressures constantly. So um, if my hips felt a little beat up, I trained a box squat. If my shoulders felt a little beat up, I trained with a safety bar for squats. I find that a lot of these higher level dudes that are genetic freaks that everybody looks up to, they're seeing that they train specific all the time too much and they think that that's the way to get better. That's the way to specifically get better, but it's the way to generally be really terrible. And then you have a lot of these hiding weaknesses and hiding muscle groups that are structurally unsound compared to the other particular muscle groups. And now you have these strength imbalances that, either show up through technique or through lack of progress. And the reason I don't think you see a lot of research on it, like with Greg Knuckles and all those guys, is because what I'm talking about is a 10 year process. You know, you have to, you know, when I trained to break the world record raw twice in the raw squat, I only touched in those two cycles completely. So that's about 40 weeks of training. I only touched the straight bar, straight weight squat six times in 40 weeks. So the point is, is that you have to be very careful at utilizing the same mode too often because then law of accommodation starts to set in. So I think the best way to avoid all those pitfalls is to constantly rotate movements. Now, the problem is, is that when you rotate movements, you have to be very keen on where your weaknesses are so that you can select the movements that are actually gonna help the other lifts shine without specifically doing that lift. For instance, um, I built my, my deadlift up tremendously using sumo for conventional and double overhand. So when I was at my best with a thumbless grip, I was able to deadlift 665 with no thumbs, sumo. So when I flipped my hand for that extra grip, I never had a problem with my hands with 800 plus in conventional. And I always felt awkward in sumo because I have bench press arms, so when I reached over, I had to lean over farther to deadlift sumo and the conventional, I could bend my knees more, push them forward and then make it more of a squat. But my point is, is that a lot of people want to train their strengths, they want to show off what they got and they don't want to show off their weaknesses. So for me, I was always looking for the lifts that made me have to strain hard less weight because I was not as proficient at those movements and that's not what everybody wants to hear. That's not what a lot of guys, or how they train, but in my opinion, that's how I got my records and that's how I kept my mileage low.
0: You know, and that makes a lot of sense actually as well because a lot of my training initially was very, I would say more specialized. Like it, it definitely was a little bit more reflective of like the Chico style of training where higher specificity, higher volume, uh, very high frequency, things like that. And, and it did a couple of things for me. Like it got me really, really good at those lifts, like all my lifts look the same all the time. Even if I take, let's say a month or two months or three months off of like a competition squat and I'm just doing front squats or, you know, safety bar something like that. So from that aspect, it was good. But the one thing that I definitely noticed was as you're squatting or deadlifting, your whole body is not getting stronger congruently. Like my legs got way, way, way stronger than everything else. And then my back just couldn't handle the load. So I'd be going and doing squats and my back would be trashed, but then my squat wouldn't go up and it's like, okay, well why? Because you know, my legs were, weren't getting enough stimulus. And so when I started throwing in like reverse hypers and stuff like that, that's really when things started taking off. And, and that actually was to me a lot of validation of the original West side stuff where it was like, Hey, you need to do a lot of isolation stuff. I find that nowadays as I get older, I can honestly do more than I could. But I think it's only because I'm training smarter. I think that if I were doing now what I should have yeah. been doing back then, obviously I would have had a lot more success. You know, but I mean, hindsight's yeah. twenty twenty, right? Um, yeah, for sure. So, do do you have any particular metrics that you like to use to inform like future programming decisions when you're working with your athletes?
1: Um, give me an example. Of what you mean?
0: So, yeah. So for instance, like a lot of the times, maybe someone's going to track volume or they're going to track, um, I dunno, like work density or, or, or like peak intensity or average intensity, or some things like that. Like, is, is there anything that you track in particular that informs future decision? making? I
1: mean, there's a the big thing that I track as a coach is consistency. Um, you know, what, what can I do to make this person more consistent? Can I make the gym, more fun? Can I make it more competitive? Can I make it more of a team atmosphere? Mm -hmm. Um, Because I find that tracking consistency leads to everything else falling into place like dominoes. Um, So yeah, you can track volume. um, But what I do is, the big thing I track is, am am I training both sides of the force equation? And am I giving myself 72 hours in between those particular force contractions? So if I have a max effort day, I try to make sure I have 72 hours before I do dynamic day, um, the volume is not necessarily tracked. It's it's trying to select based on the energy level of the client or myself, um, um, the amount of what type of jumps are sustainable that day. So what I find is that if my numbers and percentages are correct, SpeedWork's always pretty pretty normal, right? But I train work a little bit on the wider percent side. I'm not a huge fan of where Louie talks about 50, 60, because when those particular percentages were prescribed, we were doing a lot of shirt work at that time and equipment. And a lot of people want to train raw. Well, if you're raw benching Sunday and then you're speed benching raw on Wednesday, you're going to have to have some recovery aspect into that built in. And I found that if I shaved off 10% of the weight off the bar, that the speed work actually enhanced the max effort day. It didn't degradate it. Um, so my point being is when I benched 565 raw, I was using 225 in straight weight and then a mixture of bands and chains. I went all the way down to 185 and benched 611 easily. So the point was is I, I think the thing you wanna monitor is not necessarily intensity, volume, duration. Those things are important, but it's, it's trying to figure out a way to economize energy. So what I'm trying to do is figure out how do I get my firemen, policemen, military guys, or myself stronger with the minimal amount of energy expenditure versus trying to just beat them all up and saying, well, I'm calculating max days and they're moving 9,400 pounds per, you know, those things are cool. But at the end of the day, if you're not calculating the person's energy level, I think that's one of the biggest things, you know, that's what the Omega wave was designed for back in the, when I was helping with the NFL is we would be doing these omega waves, sitting these guys in these things and measuring their heart rate and doing some VO2 measurements and temperature measurements. And what we were doing was figuring out how to adapt the workout based on what they had to offer that day. And I think that's what you want to do as a coach is base things, and I actually just did an advanced programming thing on my Patreon channel, where I talked about how as an advanced athlete or as a distinguished coach, Even as a beginner or intermediate that you can base things off rate of perceived exertion versus percentages and that will actually be a better long term process because you're going to, you're going to kind of bypass the psychological effects, especially if you're utilizing um, Lots of different types of tensions and loads to where the person's not constantly doing the same lift every day. Um, Those are huge things to monitor. So a lot of things, and it may sound very elementary, but a lot of things that I monitor is have I done this exercise recently and if not it's probably going back in the program how much energy do i have to expend that day with either myself or my clients and then i try to optimize and get them stronger utilizing the minimalist approach as far as energy expenditure versus trying to beat them into the ground because i think that they need to sustain a certain amount of volume what i find that type of mindset does is it creates consistency because now i can rotate and adjust we you know we know from the research that strength can vary upwards of 10 to 12% per day. So if that's the case, then how can you base everything off of your PR? You really can't, right? But consistency, you can you can base everything off of that. If someone's consistent and someone is constantly doing whatever they can do that day, right? You might have come in one day and have this much water in your glass, and the next day you have this much water in your glass. That means you train differently those days, mm-hmm. right? That's what. That's what, understanding how to coach and manipulate and change loading parameters is going to allow long-term consistency, therefore leading to big time numbers.
0: So when I first started coaching, I used to use a lot of percentages and the more experienced I got, I just found that it it became very difficult. Like you said, to, to predict an athlete's level of preparedness based on an arbitrary number that they, you know, squatted or bench pressed. Um, you know multiple weeks ago and or sure. and sometimes multiple months ago. And and I am a big fan of the RPE system because yeah, like you said, sure. it allows you to kind of more accurately reflect what the lifter's prepared to do on that given day. Yeah. And then it also gives a better idea yeah. of kind of how their strength is progressing as well. I tend to use percentages off of, like let's say I get them to do a three RM or something like that. I yeah. might say, okay, do your back off sets at 80% of your three RM or so- something along those lines. But it's generally Autoregulatory regulatory. And so so that's one thing that you tend to do then is just kind of go in and yeah. kind of go through that like little mental process of like, how am I feeling? What do I need? What do I think I'm capable of? And then just kind of go to town and yeah. regulate. Cool. And that. the big
1: thing is, if we're talking athletes or I'm talking, mm-hmm.
0: yeah, if we're talking athletes
1: or firemen or anything of that nature, I want to know how good they are on their worst day. I don't give a shit how good they are at peak because we both know that peaking is only going to come a handful of times a year. But I can. Right. I can bet on the weakest day. See what I mean? Like, so for me, it's always basing stuff off. I want to see their worst exercise go get better without doing it. If I, if they're doing that, then I know that their strength is generally going up. The next thing we have to remember as an athlete, let's not talk powerlifting. Let's talk as a strength coach. That is not their primary job. Their Mm -hmm. primary job in the weight room is not to be a lifter. It's to be an athlete. So we have to figure out how to get these guys to progress in the weight room without taking away their sport specificity on the field. And I find that that is a huge problem because guys that are power lifters think that that's all that matters. Guys that are Olympic lifters think that that's all that matters. Guys that do strongman stuff think that that's all that matters. What matters is how good that athlete can do on the field of their prospective sport. So what we need to do is correct imbalances fix weaknesses and train a person to be more aware of their body and structure positioning so that that way they can perform their particular sport better. Now, if that includes getting them stronger, then I'm all for it. But a lot of times strength only fixes small components of the ability of an athlete to get better. It, It honestly has a lot to do with injury prevention, ligament and tendon density more so than I would say performance. Um, So the trick is, is how do we create ligament, tendon, and bone density? We reduce injury, right? If the person can constantly load, then the ligaments, tendons, and and soft tissue are going to adapt to that load much better than if we just go really hard.
0: So that's actually a really interesting point that that you brought up. So I I actually spoke with uh, Dr. Andy Galpin the other day, and he coaches a lot of very, very elite athletes, um, not specific to powerlifting, but like NFL, MLB and, and MMA fighters and things like that. And one of the things that he mentioned was that, uh, the level of type two, uh, muscle fibers an individual has doesn't necessarily coincide with their, their level of strength. And I found that to be kind of interesting at at face value anyways, because you would think someone with more type two fibers would generally be stronger, but he mentioned, you know, all the other covariates. So, like, like you're saying, uh, tendon stiffness, uh, pennation angle, um, like muscle belly insertions, and all sorts of different things. And and that was something that I think is is really underrated. And I've definitely taken a lot from uh, from Dave Tate, even how he talks about just doing really, really high volume stuff just for like health. And I found that's really, really helpful for me. Um, do you have anything that you do specifically for keeping shoulders, not shoulders necessarily, sorry, keeping lifters healthy? Um, that isn't necessarily targeting the muscles, but it's a little bit more dealing, like you said, with the soft tissues of the tendons, the ligaments, the, the fascia and stuff like that. Um, so that you don't, you know, rip off your quad or something like that.
1: I, th- I think honestly doing or, or implementing the, the warmups, the way I do is the, that's the ultimate way to correct those issues. Because if you're thinking about the warm-up, it's not general, it's very specific to an individual's weak points. That's where it gets really tricky because everybody's like, oh, that's for powerlifting, blah, blah, blah. Dude, I actually got that rep scheme from Flex Wheeler as a bodybuilder. He said he always felt better if he did lots of sets of 25. It's like his joints, ligaments, and tendons just felt better. And when I talked to him about that, that's when I set the 25. I said, the winning warm-up is not designed to initially make you stronger, it's to make you bulletproof. And when you're doing 300 reps in 14 minutes, your GPP and your heart rate and your soft tissue all has to get risen. It all has to, you know, your heart rate has to rise, your your temperature, the muscle tissue has to rise, your potentiation of those muscle groups being able to go into the movement rise, and you're doing full range of motion exercises that are specific to the goal in mind which you have that day. That's how we reduce the injuries, right? If you're doing 100 hamstring curls before you squat with the proper weight and the proper intensity, you're probably not gonna tear a hamstring squatting or deadlifting. Um, Same thing with the lower back. If I do you know 100 reverse hypers at a certain weight based on my needs, uh, that lower back is gonna be loose, it's gonna be warmed up, it's gonna be hot, it's gonna be able to fire correctly and it's gonna reduce the injury tremendously. So I think that the warm-up that we do really, really attacks that particular area. The other thing that I think you really have to focus on in the gym, which I'm sure Galpin's good at and some other guys is that looks right, flies right. You know, you got to have technical proficiency before you can have load. So with athletes or power lifters or anybody you need to, I'm more impressed now, honestly, with somebody that squats perfect versus somebody that squats heavy. Because I know that they're thinking about the right stuff. So for me, technical proficiency becomes the ultimate, like, awesomeness versus strength. Once somebody can do something technically proficient, it probably means that they don't have weaknesses or nearly as much percentage of anterior to posterior or whatever that may be. Um, Now all i got to do is work on intensity and volume,
0: right? But the problem is everybody wants
1: intensity and volume first without structural intensity and then we create postural deficiencies and injury, right?
0: I think that's something that every kind of lifter (laughs) just has to go through on their own. You kind of get banged up and you're like, hmm, maybe I should have listened to, uh, you know, all the older guys who are telling me what to do. So coming back to your your wedding up, actually, it was funny because I've had, so I dislocated my shoulder long, long time ago. I used to fight and uh, it got dislocated when someone was demoing something on me. And since then it's always been a little, gotten a little aggravated when I'm benching especially when I start doing a lot more volume um, and so I've been seeing different therapists and that stuff does definitely help actually it's funny because the thing that helps the most was when I watched your video actually on, on the wedding warm-up and I was like maybe I just need to like pump a shitload of blood into this area and get the tendons like a little bit more war- warmed up and so I started doing like a couple hundred reps of like bench press or push-ups or something like that and it actually like made the biggest difference and and i didn't have any pain and that was something that was really rare for me when i was benching um especially going through like a developmental block sure. where i have like tons of volume and i was i was actually like astonished at how effective it was because the first push up i do i was like oh i feel like my tendon's just going to snap off you know but then on rep like even on rep like to be honest on rep like well i let me know, let me way. let
1: me cut you off real quick mm-hmm. Yeah, let me cut you off real quick. You want, you don't want to use a push-up because if you're a bigger guy, a push-up's already, even if you're a great bencher, is already 40% of your strength. That's if you're a great bencher, right? Because, I mean, yeah. if you have a two-times body weight bench press, you're a pretty strong dude. So the point is, is you want to use stuff that if you're doing it for rehab and injury prevention, you want to be down around the 15 20% body weight range. So, like, for me, I use 55-pound dumbbells and I bench 600 pounds. So that's nothing. That's easier than a push-up. The point is, is that you want to use the warm up based on what your needs are. But I will say this, there's one good tip that I think people need to understand. Whatever hurts, look at the other side to be the problem. So if you have a shoulder problem, I guarantee it started in the lat, the rhomboid or the subscap muscle, and they weren't strong enough to withstand the anterior pressure.
0: And that's exactly what it was. My lats weren't strong enough um, and neither were my posterior deltoids. Like I, I had like zero extension in through my shoulder. Um, so I've been doing a lot of stuff to, to correct yeah. that. But uh, the the thing that I was going to say was I'd be doing like, you know, whatever it was, even if it's just an empty barbell, like the first 70 or 80 yeah. reps, I would still feel it. But then I take a little, a little rest and then I would come back and the next yeah. set I'd be like, Oh my God, this feels like butter. You know? And it was, I was, I was really surprised yeah. at how much of a difference it actually made. And I was just like instantly sold on, you know, just crazy high rep, warm-ups. Yeah, you
1: see, I see it's, it's so crazy. All the different variations I've seen of what it fixes. It makes people that are hurt be able to lift again. It makes people that have been stuck in plateaus be able to get stronger. It's able to actually help rebuild and restore technique. But it originally started as a pre-fatigue thing. I thought it just needed to be in better shape and one needed to do more reps and I was right. But the, all the other things that I've seen it help and fix has been tenfold
0: as far as what it actually started off as being, you know? Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's awesome when you find those little uh, those little hacks. I hate using that word, but to some degree, I feel like it's appropriate here. Um, yeah. Yeah. So we're, yeah. we're coming up on that hour mark and I want to be respectful of your time. So I just have one last question. So what's one belief or or one sort of like philosophy that you might have. That's maybe a little controversial, maybe goes against the grain regarding training. Well, I, am
1: probably, say I'm against the grain on a lot of different things compared to what, how normal people train. Um, (laughs) I would say that putting a lot of the front volume, like what we do with the winning warmups is definitely a, is a, is a monster like kicking the dick for a lot of people because it, it checks egos. Um, But the other thing too is i think i'm probably one of the most variable strength guys i i wanted to always be able to walk into a gym and no matter what exercise or resistance type somebody was doing i could do it um and what that led to was an ability to keep away from mileage so i find that the more modes that you use to get better right the bigger base you build on your pyramid the higher the potential peak can be so for me i think mode change is probably one of my big big kind of taboo things and then doing a lot of front volume before the core lift is probably the two things that set me apart from a lot of other people in programming. And um, mm-hmm. it's a belief that is slowly catching on a lot of pro teams and college teams are doing it. But um, the big thing is, is I think that nobody would have ever thought to do that first. So,
0: And uh, so can you just tell the listeners uh, where they can find you, whether it's on Instagram or website, other social media platforms?
1: Sure. So you can find me on uh, Real Matt Winning on Instagram. Uh, just my whole name with real in the front. You can go on winningstrength.com and you're going to find all the equipment we have, belt squats, fat bars, good morning machines, programs, uh, manuals, downloads. Uh, we're actually just getting ready to launch the hypertrophy manual, which is a conjunction of how I train, Michael Hearn trains, Flex Wheeler, and Stan Effering. Uh So a lot of my friends that I've, Utilize some of their training systems. We actually created an entire manual based on hypertrophy and building a solid foundation to work towards athleticism or powerlifting. Um, so that's coming out soon. And then uh, we also have the Patreon channel, which is a um, a paid subscription channel, which allows people to have direct access to me to ask all kinds of training questions. They get a lot of my manuals for free, things like that. So the Patreon is Winning Strength. The YouTube channel, which we give out free information is Winning Strength and then um, the the website is winningstrength.com.
0: Awesome. So all that stuff is going to be linked in the show notes, guys. Definitely check it out. Really excited to see when that uh, hypertrophy manual drops. Um, I'll definitely check that out. So Matt, thanks so much for joining. Uh, It it was awesome chatting with you uh, face to face and definitely learned a lot of really cool things. So yeah. No problem, buddy. Hey guys, thanks so much for listening. I hope you enjoyed the episode and took a lot from it that you can apply to your own situation to see much better results. I just have one quick personal favor to ask of you. Please make sure you subscribe and leave me a five-star rating on whatever podcast platform you're using. When you do this, it helps me get better at producing content and increases my exposure so I can continue putting out high-quality information for you guys. Next, I want to extend a personal invitation to shoot me a DM on Instagram at strength. I'll help you troubleshoot anything you need. This is literally an invitation to connect with me directly. So make sure you head on over and jump into my DMs. All right, guys, thanks so much for listening, and I'll see you next time.